1:22 through 25. Um, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. This is the word of the Lord. All right, so as we looked at last week, John the Baptist served as a forerunner to the Messiah, Jesus. He was a prophet who came in the spirit of Elijah, preaching repentance and baptizing people in the Jordan River. John was a man of the wilderness, and he had gained something of his own following, and he was declaring that there would be one coming who would be greater than he. So we talked about this last week as well. John embodied humility. He exemplified what I said um, Thomas Burton talked about, which was humility is the surest sign of strength. Humility is the surest sign of strength. In fact, just to set the table for today, I'm going to read a little bit more of that quote because I, I think it frames both how we, we want to sort of examine the person of Christ today and those he'll later call as disciples. So this is how Thomas Merton put it on humility. He said, A humble man can do great things with an uncommon perfection because he is no longer concerned about incidentals like his own interests, his own reputation, and therefore he no longer needs to waste his efforts in defending them. For a humble man is not afraid of failure. In fact, he's not afraid of anything, even of himself, since perfect humility implies perfect confidence in the power of God, before whom no other power has any meaning, and for whom there is no such thing as an obstacle. Humility is the surest sign of strength. So there's your context. So now I don't know about you, but I think I just failed Thomas Merton's test right away. I'm not a perfect man, and I'm probably a little bit afraid of failure, to be honest, maybe a lot, depending on the day. And I think that's kind of Merton's point, ultimately. I think when I'm concerned about things that he calls incidentals, like my reputation, I'm lacking a certain confidence in God somehow. So here's a question just to start things out. What or who are you afraid of? And maybe what or who do you trust? What or who are you afraid of? What or who do you trust? I suppose why is a good question too, but we won't get into that yet. John the Baptist, he was not fixated on his own interests or reputation. And he really did, did seem pretty fearless given his public confrontation of religious leaders, his declarations of judgment, and his call to justice in various spheres of life. His very clothes were a testimony to a life marked by repentance and even risk, I would say. So in our ongoing Epiphany series on the ways God reveals himself, we've been examining the various ways and means by which God expresses himself to us and to the world. We've seen how God revealed himself in the light to the Magi, and how Christ is the bringer of the kingdom of light. We've been reminded of that darkness is just the absence of light, not something 
of equal weight, sort of like a yin and yang. And we looked at how God reveals himself in humility and repentance, so to speak, and how he clothes us with righteousness, and the Father sees Christ when he looks at us. So after his own baptism, Jesus is tested in the wilderness, and then he returns to Galilee. It doesn't take long before the word is out about his new, this new teacher. But Jesus, we will come to find out, is the perfect exemplar of humility and strength. He is both confident and selfless. So how the, so the scriptures, what's interesting is that it sort of serves like a mirror to understand God's character, our own nature, and help us discern between truth and deception. So today when we look at how God reveals himself through what he says, maybe the words that he says, I think we want to specifically zone in on the person of Jesus. God reveals himself in numerous ways, and this is part of why we're doing a broader study on, you could say, revelation, which is revealing, right? We'll look specifically at how Jesus responds today to Satan in the wilderness. So God's communication to us serves like a mirror. And just as a mirror reflects our physical appearance, what God says reflects truth about himself, ourselves, and the world around us. And as we'll see today, when Jesus is faced with temptation, he doesn't look to a distorted reflection presented by Satan, but instead turns to the mirror of Scripture to respond. And I, I just want to note, make a note about the way, I'm, some language I'm going to use today. So I'm going to intentionally sometimes use, instead of saying God's word, I'm going to say God's words. Because I don't necessarily always mean written scripture, right? There are going to be times I mean that, but it may, so it, don't get tripped up. That it includes God's word as we think of the scriptures, but that's not the only thing I'm talking about when I mean that. So, but for, for Jesus, it is, it is scripture firmly rooted in a relationship, which is crucial, with his Father. And then from that, Jesus responds. So this isn't simply an exercise in sort of rote verse memory. We'll find that today that Satan also had some verses memorized. (laughs) So this is truth-telling. This is Jesus participating in a beautiful, sometimes tragic, and yet still unfolding story of humanity and God. So today we'll get three temptations. And as we do, I want you to ask yourself, where's their fear? Where's their trust? Where's their darkness that calls itself light? And where's their real light? So where's their darkness? Where's their light? Where's their fear? Where's their trust? Let's look at Luke 4 together, starting in verse 1. It says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world, and he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So the devil led him to Jerusalem 
and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you, are draw- if you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. So when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. So we have Jesus, who's been fasting for 40 days in the wilderness, and Satan is tempting Jesus, the Son of Man. So the first temptation here, I guess you could say something like, I don't know, it's about provision. Satan questions both Jesus' own sonship and the provision specifically of the Father. Essentially, he tries to drive a wedge between God the Father and God the Son. He's tempting Jesus to act independently of the Father. And as you think about it, I think this kind of makes sense. In the truest sense of power, Jesus is the most powerful human to ever live. I'm certain it was tempting even for Satan, of course. But the key here for Satan is to undermine the relationship first. And this makes the Father's words to Jesus immediately following Christ's earlier baptism that we read about last week, all the more significant. Do you remember what God the Father said as Jesus was baptized? He said, you are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. And I have to share a quick story because my nine-year-old son, who's not here, uh, he's in class right now. Before I came up, he specifically, he whispered to me, Dad, can you make sure that everyone knows that it was my birthday yesterday and I turned nine? And so I'm letting you all know that Lincoln is now nine years old. Happy birthday, Lincoln. Um, But it reminded me of that passage, like how important it is for a child to hear from their parent that they're loved, that, that they're affirmed, that, that they're theirs. They, they have a place to belong. And that I'm pleased with him, that I love him. I also love my other two kids who are here as well. <laughs> I bet those words are fresh in the mind of Jesus as Satan confronts him. Satan's trying to get Jesus to doubt the love of his dad. He's implying that Jesus is a fraud, an an accusation that will follow Jesus his whole life. Satan, of course, knows Jesus is the Son of God. Otherwise, he wouldn't be taking all this time to personally tempt him, take him to the temple in Jerusalem. Satan is not dumb to an end, I suppose. So Satan is attempting to create doubt by questioning the Father's care and provision for Jesus. If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. He knows Jesus is hungry, and while it appears like Satan is appealing to Jesus to get him to prove his strength, he is actually attempting to appeal to the weakness of his humanity. It looks like he's saying, if you're really God, prove it. But if Jesus had fallen for this, it would have instead proved his moral weakness, not supernatural strength. Jesus, his strength here is revealed in his dependence on the Father, in his patience, in his humility. His strength is revealed in his restraint. So I can't tell you how many 
stupid things I've seen people do over the years when they feel challenged or perhaps dared. Most of them are not appropriate to share in the setting, and most of them are from college years. I'll just put it that way. They feel that they need to prove their toughness or intelligence or coolness or whatever. But instead, they often end up revealing themselves to be weak or vain. And there's an old saying, I think, that may, maybe has a few variations, but it goes something like this. Be careful what you get good at. <laughs> Be careful what you get good at. Jesus, by contrast, quotes Deuteronomy in the Torah from a passage referencing God's miraculous provision of manna for Israel. It is written, man shall not live on bread alone. So here's the beginning of Deuteronomy uh, 8, where he, Jesus is citing from in his response. This is the full passage. It says this, be careful to follow every command I am giving you today so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes did not wear out and your feet did not swell during those 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. So Jesus knows the truth and he isn't afraid of Satan. Remember God created Satan and then Satan rebelled. So these aren't equal and opposite forces, Satan and God. Jesus reveals himself through his character, and he reveals himself through what he says. He doesn't run his mouth, he, but he also isn't apathetic or resigned. Instead, Jesus remembers what is true, and from that, he speaks. He knows that God uses our times in the wilderness to develop humility to teach us that he is the true source of everything we have, including the food we eat, the clothes we wear. This is an act of love. Can you love Satan? That's kind of a weird question. He is the one who created, that is God, of course, he is the one who created everything, including the capacity for us to cultivate and grow and sow and construct and strategize and design and harvest and he is the one who holds all things together. Jesus knows this because he knows God. It says, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. He responds, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. So where's their fear here? And where is their trust? Jesus uses his words to talk about life. Man shall not live on bread alone. He zooms out. This isn't a conversation only about bread. So when was the last time you could say to yourself, maybe in your heart of hearts, that you trusted the processes of God? The ways he develops and disciplines and guides and coaches and comforts and encourages, the way he cheers us on and weeps with us in our failures, the way he sees himself in you in your life. 
Do you trust him to provide for you? Maybe why or why not? Back to Luke 4 for temptation 2, which is about God's holiness, meaning how he is set apart. We'll pick it up in verse 5. It says, The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I will give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will be all yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Isn't that the devil's offer, just like so many of the snake oil salesmen today? <laughs> like, that is the offer. I can give you the world. I can show you the world. Actually, come to think of it, it sounds a little bit like Aladdin singing to Jasmine in Disney, so maybe there should have been some red flags there. I don't know. Maybe a little bit different. I can give you the world. And I don't just offer this to anyone. You aren't like the others. I picked you because you're different. You are special. We are special. If you follow me, you'll get the whole world thrown in too. Here Satan appeals to the trappings of power and success, maybe notoriety, to dominion. I wrote this the other day in a little short essay, and I think it fits well here. So it's a little weird to quote yourself, but I'm going to, because this whole thing is sort of quoting myself, I guess. But propaganda is trust that's in a hurry. It is a trust that is highly conditional and potentially superficial. It is inferior to trust built on transparency, consistency, and credibility. As with so many who offer promises like this, Satan is lying. He doesn't have this kind of power ultimately, but he is powerful. And ironically, any power he has is derivative, right? Meaning it flows from God. Satan knows his power has an expiration date. And so it's sort of a half-truth that is intentionally deceptive. It's propaganda. Satan is in a hurry. And Jesus sees through it and responds by quoting Deuteronomy 6 which says, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Here's the broader context from Deuteronomy 6. It says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's really important. Keep that in your brain. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commands that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. When the Lord your God brings you into the land he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land with large flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then, when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of slavery. Fear the Lord your God, serve him only, and take your oaths in his name. So a question for you is, what do you see as the highest good in your life? 
Maybe when everything falls apart, what is left? Or when everything goes right, where do you find comfort when you realize even that isn't enough? I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So Jesus, he uses his words to declare that God is one and that God is holy. The secret of the universe seems to be that God is real and that he invites us into relationship. At least that's part of it. Perhaps it could be boiled down to this. What do the practices of our lives tell us about who we revere? What do the practices of your life tell you about who you revere? Your speech, your habits, your daydreams, your anxieties, web and social media habits, the way you consume news, the friends you keep and those you don't, what you say yes to, what you say no to. How can the practices of your life teach you about what you set apart as holy? How do the words you say maybe reveal your God? On to temptation three, the goodness of God. Back in Luke 4, Verse 9 says, the devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. All right, so here Satan kind of flips the script and maybe brushes off his, like, Awana training from back in the day. <laughs> Sorry, Awana. That's not a slam on Awana, to be clear. He appeals to Scripture by quoting Psalm 91. Satan is putting himself in the position of God again. He makes it seem like he's trying to test that God is who he says he really is. But if Jesus was to engage Satan in the test... Jesus would really be trying to earn the approval of Satan himself, as though he was the one who determines what's good and bad. That's kind of the way Satan works with our reputations. We think we're trying to somehow show someone else that this is good or change their minds about something or someone, but really we're trying to earn their approval so that they agree with their view, maybe. We think we're trying to protect the reputation of God, perhaps, but we're subtly undermining it by setting up the critic as the arbiter of truth. This doesn't mean that we don't try to persuade other people, of course. I'm probably trying to persuade you of some things right now. It means that we don't enter into this sort of testing environment because it's a trap intended to place them in authority over us or over God. And once the scoffer does this, the test will just never end. They know they can send us off to prove ourselves over and over again as we attempt to maintain a position with them. We see this in no surprise politics, relationships, churches, and so many other places. So it's good and right for God to refine and, dis and discipline us. 
And it's good and right to test the thinking of people, including me. In fact, please do. <laughs> and I'd say especially pastors or anyone who claims to have any sort of spiritual authority, we're told to examine not only their words, but also their actions and their lives. Are they genuine? Are they hypocrites? Or is this a power play of some sort? Is this a loyalty thing? A way to separate us from God ultimately and put us under their authority alone. Let's read all of Psalm 91, which Satan quotes, to give you a full picture of God's character instead of the half-truth. And I think it's much more encouraging. <laughs> Psalm 91, whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Surely he will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his feathers and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. If you say the Lord is my refuge and you make the most high your dwelling, no harm will overtake you. No disaster will come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. You will, be tread on, you will tread on the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him, for he acknowledges my name. He will call on me, and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. So God rescues us because he loves us. It's in the same way that I acknowledged, was it, acknowledged my name. I acknowledge the name of Lincoln, my son, right? We want to be seen and known. This is not because of some sort of obscure power and glory sapped of relationship, right? We don't worship a force. God can defend his own reputation. Fellowship with him is a gift we say yes to. And his invitation defines the terms of our relationship not our deservedness. We don't love God just because he protects us. Dictators do that, right? We love God because he loves us. He's holy. He's righteous. He backs it up with actions. He pursues us and we respond. We love God because he is holy and perfectly good, and he loves us too. Satan sets up this scenario where Jesus is supposed to test the Father's capacity and willingness to rescue Jesus. But this is to undermine the relationship altogether. No one is in closer and more perfect community than that of the Trinity. And the Israelites, as they said repeatedly, and I pointed out earlier in Deuteronomy 6, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Believe me, Jesus knew that better than anyone. So how do we see Jesus reveal himself through his words? 
Well, Jesus responds by again quoting Deuteronomy 6 himself. He says, it is not, or it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus himself uses his words to, to declare truth. And he reveals himself in that way. And I would say this is one of the most important aspects of how God reveals himself, is in language. He declares what is true. Anything that God asserts is right, and it is righteous. What he says is of the utmost importance. So the question is, where have you let someone else define the terms of God's goodness for you? Who is filtering your view of God? Who appears to be a mouthpiece for justice and mercy, but isn't actually declaring what is true? Who in your life sees God as a tool to be manipulated or a weapon to be wielded rather than our person of refuge and our place of peace and strength and worship? In short, are we using God as a means to an end? That's basically what Satan's doing, right? Are we positioning ourselves as judge and jury over God as though he needs to answer to us? So it's often pointed out in closing here that Jesus relied on the scriptures when faced with temptation. I don't think this is something we should minimize. Jesus, the son of God, responded to the darkness by shining light on it. He didn't use it like a magic spell or a mantra. He appealed to it as a reminder of what's true. What is true about God? What is true about me? What is true about those around me? And as we studied the end of last year, just like Satan tempted Adam and Eve, he tries to tempt the second Adam, Jesus. Did God really say dot, dot, dot is the repeated tactic. So like I alluded to at the beginning of our time together, we train our ear, our ears, collective ears, I don't got my grammar wrong there, to the voice of God. And the mirror of his words become a way for us to see ourselves, the world, others clearly. We see God's character, his own, our own nature, and discern between truth and deception. James 1 puts it this way, which we read very, at the very beginning with Aubrey. It says, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and all the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror. And after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. So in closing, the words, the words of God reveal him. And of course, much of what we know of today about God's communication to us in language is recording, recorded in this wonderful and complicated 
collection of ancient texts called the scriptures, the Bible. We believe the kingdom of light is ruled by a good God who shares himself both by what he does, does and what he says. And as we learn from our creator, our words and our lives are transformed. And in turn, we reveal God in ourselves and in our communities.